Hi, friends. I'm Kaylin. And I'm Logan. And this is Bones, a true crime podcast. The case we have for you this week takes place right here in the Midwest and is commonly known by just saying the words Baby Lisa. If you want to see pictures related to this week's case, you can follow us on Instagram at Bones, a true crime pod, or find us on our Facebook page, Bones, a true crime podcast. If you have questions or case suggestions, you can email us at bones, a true crime podcast at gmail.com. Subscribing to our episode and leaving positive reviews are one of the best ways you can help support our podcast. Now let's dive in. Lisa Renee Irwin was born on November 11th, 2011 in Independence, Missouri to her mother, Deborah Bradley and her father, Jeremy Irwin. She was a beautiful baby girl and completed the Irwin family. Lisa had big blue eyes, loved dancing with her daddy to country music, and she was a big foodie. Lisa's mother said that when Lisa would finish her food, she would move on to their plates. She was my kind of girl. She was around 30 inches and 30 pounds, so she was a little chunk, too. Deborah and Jeremy had what seemed to be a normal family. They were raising their children in the Midwest. They lived in a safe suburban neighborhood with their three children in Kansas City, Missouri. Each parent had a little boy from their previous relationship, and they had Lisa together. So while technically they were half-siblings, they didn't see it as that. They were just a family. Jeremy described Lisa as the glue that held their family together. She combined them. She made them one. When Lisa was 10 months old, her brothers were 6 and 8 years old. Deborah was lucky enough to stay home with her children while Jeremy was an electrician. It wasn't easy, though, and they had to make sacrifices because money was tight. They are a split family, so you don't know what all of their expenses are. If, you know, one of them has to pay child support to the other parent, if one of them receives child support from another parent, so that might kind of help offset, you know, income. But I will tell you, since I work full time and I have to send Ridley to actual daycare two days a week, it is very expensive. Like, It honestly doesn't even make sense that I work, but I think I would go insane if I stayed home all day or like a mental health thing for me, I guess. But yeah, I, like I said, definitely could not afford to send Ridley to daycare full time. You're right, Logan. While money was tight with Deborah staying home, it may not have made sense financially for her to work. They would have been in a similar situation that you are. They had two kids in school, and one would have been daycare age. The older kids aren't old enough to be alone during school breaks or summer, though, so that's another thing to think about. I know you treat your bonus babies as your own, too. Deborah and Jeremy were the same way. They didn't act like a split family, and they loved all of their children equally. On Tuesday, October 4th in 2011, Jeremy received a call from his boss asking him to work an evening shift. He had already worked that day, but they needed the money, so he couldn't turn down the opportunity to earn a little extra cash. There wasn't anything specifically I found that was the reason for the financial situation of the family being so tight, but according to the Department of the Bureau of Labor Statistics, Jeremy likely would have made somewhere around $65,000 a year. I know that might not sound like a lot, but for reference, in 2012, the median household income was $47,000. And an average income for an individual household was just $25,000. I say all of this to say that the family made a decent income for our area. I think it all goes back to what we mentioned earlier. 
Living on one income can be tough, and kids can make it even more difficult. Parker was three and a half, and Bridger was around six months old when I went back to work. Living on one income wasn't a huge deal when we just had one child, but when our second child had special needs, it made a huge difference. Buying special products, going to multiple appointments a week, diapers, everything. It all just started to add up faster than you would imagine. It also takes a big toll on your mental health. Staying home with your children can sometimes feel like you aren't contributing to your family financially, and it can cause mental health illnesses. I know the financial status of the Irwin family may not seem like a big deal, but it is a reason for a lot of the red flags that we're about to get into. When Jeremy got home, he was, he was able to spend some time with his kids and give Deborah the opportunity to run to the store before he would head out for another shift. Deborah ran to the store with her brother and is seen purchasing baby food and box wine. That's super important later. Um, it doesn't really sound like a big detail when you're just talking about it, but you'll definitely want to remember the box wine. Once Deborah returned, Jeremy left their house around 5.30 p.m. for his overnight electrician job at a local Starbucks. I'm sure Deborah appreciated the little break she had to go to the store, but I really do feel for her here. When Josh gets home from work, I am so glad to have someone else home just to help with the kids so I can get other things done that I've been putting off. It would really suck knowing how quickly he was going to have to leave, though. This isn't a very popular opinion, but being a stay-at-home mom is a lot of work, and it is a full-time job. It's nice being able to run to the post office or even the store just without having to get the kids in and out of car seats at every location. Yes, that's my favorite thing to do is to, like, even go to town for, like, two seconds by myself. I'm like... Oh my gosh, like, hmm, this is nice. I'm going to sit in my car in this parking lot and not go home for 10 minutes. <laughs> Cody's going to hear this and he's going to like start checking in more often. I know he's going to be like, why aren't you back? Where are you? Yeah, where are you? <laughs> are you actually at the grocery store? Um, So Jeremy was expected to be home around like 1030 or 11. So it wasn't an all night ordeal, but it was still a late night. And I mean, the kids all would have been in bed, so... She still was doing everything in the evening on her own. This was unusual for the family, as Jeremy typically did not work nights, so the routine was definitely out of whack. Jeremy wouldn't be home to help get the kids to bed, and the kids wouldn't have their dad there while they were getting ready for bed. Josh worked night shift for several years, and we had a really good routine. It was just me and Parker, so we made our schedule around Josh's shift. Now that he's on days, if he goes out of town or is going to be home really late, I have a terrible time. I'm used to having him here to help with dinner, baths, and bedtime routine now. I'm sure it was an adjustment for Deborah and the kids because it was such a random shift and they weren't expecting it. Deborah was going to make the most out of it, though. She was going to hang out with her friend slash neighbor all evening, and when Jeremy was leaving for work, Deborah and their neighbor were talking on the front porch. Later that evening, Deborah would lay Lisa down in her crib with her pacifier. She told her she loved her, and she left Lisa to sleep. There are differing statements on the last time that Deborah checked in on baby Lisa, but it was somewhere between 10.40 and 10.45 p.m. Around 3.45 a.m., just a few hours after Lisa was last seen in her crib, Jeremy Irwin would return from his night shift and walk right in the house. I want to emphasize the time that Jeremy returned home. The information I found said that Jeremy was supposed to be home several hours earlier than he was. There isn't really anything explaining the different time frames. Nevertheless, when Jeremy did get home, the front door was closed but unlocked. Deborah cannot confirm that she locked the door, but she assumes that she did. I'm sure that's something that she did so habitually, 
that it just didn't leave a mark in her memory. I always lock the door, but I still continue thinking about it once I'm in bed. I can even like convince myself that I didn't lock the door and have to go back and check and it's always locked. But if I don't go check, then I won't be able to fall asleep. Jeremy noticed a few more things that were unusual while making his way through their house. There were several lights left on through the house, lamps and such, and several windows were open. I mentioned earlier that they were having money troubles, so that was just really kind of like he was frustrated, kind of annoyed, like, why are we leaving all these lights on? Why are the windows open? So he started going through and kind of fixing those things, shutting lights off. He went to close one of the windows, though, and the screen was popped out in the corner. It was like it had been pushed in towards the house. So it was like someone had pushed it from the outside of the house trying to get in. He didn't really think too hard on it at the time. It was kind of more like in hindsight, you're like, wow, that was really weird. But at the time, he just got it to pop back in and shut the window. He didn't really think about it. Jeremy's next stop, though, was to check on his children. He noticed their oldest son was in bed, but the youngest was not. That didn't really cause any alarms because he just assumed that he was in bed with Deborah, which he was able to confirm. Later, we'll kind of find out that the um, oldest son actually slept with his mom that night, too. But then he went and got in his own bed later and the youngest just stayed in there. Jeremy was surprised not to see Lisa, though. When Jeremy asked where Lisa was, Deborah acted like it was a silly question. Obviously, she would be in her crib. Jeremy made his way to her nursery, but he was confused. When he went back to check on Lisa, he noticed her door was cracked open. This was also unusual because the family kept their doors shut when they were sleeping, typically. I know I'm very big on this, like keeping our doors shut in case there was a fire. I know it's probably not likely, but I always want all of our bedroom doors shut at night while we're sleeping. Jeremy was shocked to find that Lisa was not there. Lisa was just 10 months old. She couldn't have crawled out of her crib. So immediately they panicked and knew something was wrong. As they're looking through the house for her, they start putting more pieces together. Someone had broken in and taken their baby. They even ran to the neighbor's house just to make sure that somehow Lisa didn't end up over there. Maybe Deborah forgot that she took her over there, but their neighbor confirmed she did not have baby Lisa. I can completely understand the fear and panic, but I think it's kind of weird that Deborah just stayed in bed while Jeremy went to check. I always tease Josh about not being able to find things right in front of him, but I don't think I would be so laid back if he was talking about one of our children. If Josh got home from work and he was like, why aren't one of the kids where you put them? I would like jump out of bed and start frantically searching. Yeah, I think I would be in panic mode. <laughs> I would be like, uh, what are you talking about? They're not where they're supposed to be. Yeah, your first instinct would be to like panic, especially a baby that isn't big enough to like escape her crib. I still, I probably would have been like, oh no, somehow she got out. But I don't yeah, think that I would. She fell out um, head first. Yeah, like I would probably be thinking more like, did one of her brothers help her out? And I didn't know it. Like I can see something like that, but still I would be in a panic to find her. Deborah and Jeremy immediately tried to call 911. They quickly realized that all three of the phones that were charging in the kitchen were missing. I initially thought it was weird that Deborah and the kids were home alone and left all of their phones charging in the kitchen. It didn't take long to find out that the Irwin family didn't pay their phone bill, so their service had been shut off. So that's another thing, like money was tight and they weren't, their phone bill was due that day and their phones had just been shut off. Um, it's also, 
I was like, why do they have three phones? Because they have little kids. Um, I didn't really think that they would have a phone for each kid yet. But one of them was Deborah's, one was Jeremy's, and then one was actually Deborah's grandfather's. He knew that Deborah's phone was broken, so she was borrowing his at the time. Okay, that makes sense. So even if Deborah had her phone, it wouldn't have changed much. Um, she wouldn't have been able to receive updates from Jeremy because they didn't didn't have their bill paid. And um, it didn't really delay them calling 911 either. Jeremy actually had a work phone, so he was able to use that to call 911 around 4 a.m. The police immediately jumped into action when they received the call. Authorities were searching the Irwin house, neighbors' houses, and looking in any nook or cranny that a baby's body could be shoved. They were ringing all of the alarm bells. We often hear about police not doing enough in true crime cases, but this just wasn't true for this case. By 7 a.m., an Amber Alert was released, and they weren't going to leave any stone unturned. It's also important to note that initially in police reports, they believed this to be an abduction. They publicly stated that there was no reason to suspect the parents at this point in the investigation. The Irwins were cooperating. The police began looking at anyone that could have known that Jeremy wouldn't be home that night. Deborah felt like they had to have been targeted. Someone had to have been watching them and intentionally abducted their baby girl because it wasn't normal for Jeremy to be gone. It wasn't like this was a normal routine, like someone would just know, oh, He's leaving now for the night. Now I can jump in and grab the baby. So what are the odds that someone would abduct their baby one night, the one night that he was gone? I don't really, I don't know how I feel about that. I can see why police initially went to that. I also would have been like, oh, maybe if there was like a family member or a friend or someone who they had like a bad interaction with, maybe like maybe. That would be why they would automatically go there. But it's just a little too strange to me that this was the one night that he worked and all of a sudden his baby was taken. Yeah. And you don't, you know, get that factor. This is their child together. They have the two boys from separate relationships. So it's not like the obvious, oh, the mom took her or, oh, the dad took her it's not like that whole situation so it's just really hard to try to figure out if you're not suspecting the parents it has to be like a random abduction or someone that you know like you said knows your routine or knows you as a family exactly that's what I think too things changed quickly for authorities though and the Irwin family on October 6th just two days after baby Lisa disappeared Deborah and Jeremy decided to stop cooperating with the police. The Irwins even made a public statement explaining themselves. Jeremy was distraught, and he said that he just couldn't take any more questions. Deborah, on the other hand, was beginning to be blamed, and she couldn't fill in the gaps or explain things to the police. They were telling her that they knew she did something to Lisa, and she just needed to be honest with everyone so they could stop searching. The Kansas City police were pushing her to tell them where to find the body. They were pushing Jeremy to turn on his wife. They actually even told Deborah that she failed a polygraph, which wasn't true. But they were trying to use that to, like, leverage Jeremy against his wife to say, like, 
hey, she failed this polygraph. So now do you want to tell us the truth? Like, do you think she could have done this to your daughter? And they just, I think they were just both at their breaking point. That's understandable to feel that way, but it's just never a good look when you go against the police. Like when you stop cooperating, like, I think it's fine if you want to make like your opinion known and you want to make a formal statement and maybe you want to, you know, address like police are pressuring me to admit something that's not true we still want to be cooperative as we can with them, but I just feel like it's never good to just, you know, to just break that relationship altogether. I agree. I don't think that the family took the right approach by ending their cooperation with the police department. I would almost bet that if they could do things differently now, that they would. There are so many people that criticize the Irwin family for not continuing to help the authorities. People have been attacking Deborah for years, and they truly believe that she did something to her baby. I don't know if I've mentioned it yet, but the theory made by the police is that Deborah was co-sleeping with Lisa and rolled over on her. She then disposed of her body because she was afraid of facing the consequences of her actions. I think most, if not all, parents are aware that co-sleeping isn't the safest. Co-sleeping is especially dangerous, though, if you're under the influence of drugs, alcohol, or even certain prescriptions. Deborah admitted to having a substance abuse problem because her mental health wasn't in the best place. If Deborah isn't responsible for the death of her daughter, though, she was just a mom trying to cope and was instead blamed for the abduction of her baby girl. I'm sure she already blamed herself to an extent without the help of the public's opinion. Exactly. I don't think authorities were totally off base when pushing the Irwins. I'm sure they see cases like this where the parent or parents are guilty, and authorities probably do have to put pressure on them to get to the truth. I would like to think that I would go through any amount of questioning if it put me closer to finding my baby, though. The Irwins not cooperating or being able to withstand the pressure threw up red flags. Plus, there were a lot of things about the scene that weren't adding up. Why did someone steal the phones? They're the one thing that can be tracked. Why wasn't there anything else missing? How did nobody else wake up? The kidnapper had to have known exactly which room to go in, if they didn't wake up the little boy that was sleeping on his own. The family also had a dog that never barked. No neighbors remember their dogs barking either. Police witnessed several neighbors' dogs barking at them while they were searching at all hours of the night. Police officers also did a reenactment, attempting to get into the house through the window that appeared to have been broken into. They concluded that it would not have been possible without either a stepladder or another person. One thing I've seen a lot of people like make a big deal out of is that nothing else was stolen. I feel like if you're going in to kidnap a baby, you're probably not worried about anything else. And I can see why someone would take the phones because then they can't call authorities. But like people make a big deal. They're like, they took the phones and not the TV. Well, how are you going to carry like a huge TV out and (laughs) And a a baby? baby? And why would you go in for a TV and a baby? Like, I feel like if you're going in to steal something then you would go in and you would steal the expensive things. And they say that he went in, like the potential abductor went in through a computer room. So it's like a second living room area and it's on the opposite side of the house of the kids and where the parents and everyone slept. So, I mean, it's a good distance away. It's, I mean, I can see how it's possible that maybe they didn't hear what was going on if they were really in a deep sleep. 
Deborah and Jeremy had several inconsistencies in their stories. They would tell some reporters that nobody could have came in through the window, but they would tell other reporters that they did believe that it was possible that an intruder entered their house that way. Some people speculate that going through a window isn't practical if the front door was unlocked. They would have surely tried that as the first option. I kind of disagree with this, though. We don't know for sure that the door wasn't unlocked when the kidnappers were on their way out. Maybe they went in through the window and just came out through the door. Why would you go back out through the window if you could sneak out a front door? And it would be, can you imagine how hard it would be to slip out a window like as an adult and holding an infant? The room that the tampered window was in was tucked back away from the other bedrooms like I had mentioned. It is possible that if all the other doors were shut and someone knew what they were doing, that they probably wouldn't have made a substantial amount of noise. One of the suspects we're going to talk about later was known for breaking into people's homes and stealing things. If he's good at that and does that in his free time, then obviously he's going to be able to do it quietly. Jeremy had an airtight alibi, but it doesn't seem like authorities ever thought he was guilty of hurting Lisa. He was seen on video footage working all night long. So if he was guilty in their eyes, it was helping Deborah avoid getting caught. I think Deborah was so easily turned into the villain of this story because of her lack of alibi and inconsistencies. I'm not saying that I believe her one way or the other, but I do feel like there wasn't anyone playing devil's advocate. Jeremy did defend his wife. He reportedly defended her in the media and just to everybody that would question them, the police, people he would talk to that thought his wife was guilty. He always had her back. And I think that that's really important because, I mean, he obviously loved his daughter. If he would have thought there was any way that his wife would have done something to her, I think that he would have tried to get to the bottom of it with the police. Two weeks after baby Lisa disappeared, Deborah admitted on ABC that she was drunk the night that her daughter went missing. I mentioned earlier that there is surveillance footage of her purchasing a box of wine while at the store with her brother. She drank five to ten glasses of wine while she was sitting on the porch with her neighbor and as Jeremy was leaving for work. Her neighbor even left to buy more alcohol that night after Jeremy left for work while Deborah watched all of the children. So she had her two boys, her daughter, and her neighbor's daughter in the house while her neighbor went to get them some more alcohol. Deborah claims that she potentially blacked out the night of Lisa's disappearance, but she claims it has absolutely nothing to do with her daughter's disappearance. She thinks that the drinking is irrelevant to the case. I do disagree with this. It definitely makes sense why her timeline is hard for her to remember and why there are gaps in her story. If she was drunk, it would be easier for someone to sleep through the sounds. I'm not saying that her drinking is like makes her guilty of anything or it's a bad thing, but Deborah wants it to really not be a part of the story. And I think it's important because it does change things. It could change her awareness and just change the fact that if somebody saw that they were out drinking on their porch all night, maybe they were like, oh, tonight would be a good night. Another thing that doesn't make sense to me is that the timeline of when Lisa was seen was changed after Deborah reported to the media that she had been drinking. She changed the last time she had seen Lisa to 6.40 p.m. So initially she said that she had checked on Lisa before they went to bed at like 10.30 to 10.45. And this was changed all the way back to 6.40 when she initially put Lisa in her crib for the night. So, I mean, it's not that 
there was, I mean, if she put her daughter to bed, she was almost a year old. I can understand her not going in and checking on her again, but I don't know why she lied about it. Her lawyer says that Deborah was simply condensing the facts. Deborah says that she was too focused on her baby being missing. She was just confused. Fifteen days after the disappearance of baby Lisa, the police returned to the urban house. This time, they have a search warrant. You're probably wondering how they managed a search warrant when they reportedly had no evidence. They didn't even really think the parents were involved. The search warrant document reveals that a cadaver dog from the FBI hit in the parents' room. Deborah reportedly told the police that she didn't want to look behind the house because she had a fear of what she might find. On October 19, 2011, a search was performed of the Irwin house. Court documents showed that a cadaver dog turned up the scent of a dead body that might have been Lisa near Deborah's bed. Items removed during the search included a multicolor comforter, purple shorts, a multicolor Disney character shirt, a glowworm toy, a cars themed blanket, rolls of tape, and a tape dispenser. During one of the interviews, Deborah specifically mentions that Lisa always sleeps with her glowworm. I think that a lot of this is really weird. So Deborah mentioning repeatedly that she was scared to look behind the house in case she found her daughter. I think that's such a weird statement. But I can't understand being scared to look in case you find your child's body. But I don't understand why she would specifically say behind the house. Like what? That doesn't make sense to me. And they literally tore their yard apart. There were people in like full blown, like full white suits, just like fully covered to not contaminate the scene, digging and looking for any trace of Lisa that Deborah could have put her, stuffed her anywhere. So that's basically all, like all we have for the case. But we do have some witness reports and we're going to get into some more theories. A neighbor slash witness reported that he saw a man carrying a baby down the street with just a diaper around 12.30 a.m. It was so shocking to him that the baby was not appropriately clothed. He even called his wife over to the window to witness what he was seeing. October is a weird time of year for us regarding weather, so I can understand why that would be so alarming, because there are days in October where, like, you are sweating, but then that night, you might be shivering in, like, a full-blown coat. So I'm assuming that the weather, if the neighbor was that alarmed to see a baby in just a diaper, I'm assuming that the weather was not great that night. And we're going to go on to confirm that with another witness report. But this one just didn't specifically say that. So the same neighbor actually left for work shortly after he saw the man and the baby. The neighbor continued to watch him while driving out of the neighborhood and reported to police the exact yard that he saw the man cut through. Police were able to get shoe prints that were believed to have been from that night. A half mile away from there, there was a fire set inside a dumpster that was reported to have potentially been burning baby clothes at 2.30 in the morning. At this same time, they have surveillance footage of a man walking on a sidewalk near a gas station not far from where this fire had been set. The footage is incredibly hard to see, but the timeline matches. So just to give you an idea of this, the man is seen cutting through this yard and if you go through this yard you can go like it's to like an apartment division to where that dumpster would be 
So it would be on the same like track. And then if you keep following this guy's track to the gas station where he was reportedly seen, you'll see him again on surveillance surveillance footage along the way. So, I mean, it adds up and it's just really weird that someone would take that specific path where all of these things and all of these red flags are being thrown up. Another man came forward saying at 4 a.m. that he saw a man carrying a baby several miles from baby Lisa's home. He is confident he saw baby Lisa. This witness was riding his motorcycle and pulled over. He saw a man walking and asked if he was okay. The man said yes and turned his head kind of towards the witness. The witness could then see the man was holding a baby. This baby was wearing just a diaper and a t-shirt. When the witness went to leave, he told the man to get a blanket on that baby. It was too cold to be out without one. The man all of these witnesses described was in his 30s or 40s and carrying a baby wearing just a diaper. Another weird event occurred the night that Lisa Irwin disappeared. One of the phones that was taken was used to call someone named Megan Wright. Deborah doesn't believe the call went through because they hadn't paid their bill yet. So they were only receiving incoming calls. Megan Wright claims to have not known the family of baby Lisa. She says she never received a call and says the only connection that she has is that she was the on and off again girlfriend of John Tanko. John Tanko also goes by the name Jersey. So in other cases or articles you might read, you'll hear them talk about this man named Jersey a lot. I'm just going by his real name, um, John. John did odd jobs and was working for a neighbor of the Irwin family. The neighbor John was working for is the same yard that the man carrying a diapered baby cut through. John Tanko was known to law enforcement and consistently in and out of trouble. John and Megan actually broke up a week before baby Lisa disappeared because she claimed he was going back into his prison mentality. John was known for burglary and arson. Police questioned him, but say that he was never considered a suspect. This is so weird for me, though. Someone in the neighborhood witnessed John steal someone else's dog, and it was later found like miles and miles from their home. But it was like just you. It was just a silly, pointless crime. Like he just stole the dog to get rid of it. He didn't keep it, just got rid of it. And he was known for these crimes. And the police do say that the phones never got within like, they never got further than like a quarter of a mile away from the house or something like that. So the phones were basically disposed of from what I can, like from what I've gathered. The Irwin family believes that there's still hope that their daughter could be found. They're hoping that the age progression photos could help find their baby girl. They still live in the house their daughter was abducted from. Lisa's nursery hasn't changed, and they have all the gifts that they held on to for her over the years. So they, every year for Christmas, birthdays, everything, they would still buy her like her normal gifts, what she would maybe be into for that age group, um, things like that. And they would wrap them and just put them in their room. After about seven years, though, they began buying her jewelry because they were running out of room, honestly. Um it's, but it's all still in her room, ready for her to open whenever she comes home. I'm just so sad to think about. Oh, I cannot even imagine. And that's one of the things that leads me to think that the family isn't involved because they seem very dedicated to her years later. So it's just really hard for me to believe that. Um, I also wanted to read a poem that Lisa's grandmother wrote her. 
It says, poem from Mama for little Lisa. I haven't met a child who doesn't touch my soul, but little Lisa's special. She's someone I don't know. I see her picture daily, as pretty as a picture can be. Who has little Lisa and where can she be? Her mother and her father, the strength they are made of. To carry on and suffer, all in the name of love. Dear God, watch over little Lisa, as only you can do. Give her family comfort, help him see this through. As a light, I promise to look into the eyes of each child I see, to see if I can find Lisa looking back at me. Let's keep all of our lights shining till all can see us bright and get little Lisa home to her mother. It's the only way that's right. Robin Mosley, Mama. That was like gut-wrenching. Isn't that so sad? Oh my gosh. A lot of my information from my research came from season two, episode three of Real Life Nightmares. Their episode titled Vanished from the Crib was about baby Lisa. The end of their episode had a chilling quote. When asked if Deborah Bradley, Jeremy Irwin, Megan Wright, and John Tanko have been ruled out as suspects, the Kansas City Police Department said that three have, but one has not. They will not specify which three have and which one has not. So what do y'all think? Who is the one that hasn't been ruled out? 